0: And what this really means is that open banking gives you control over your data and allows you to have a say about uh, how it's shared and how it's used. So now to summarize, you know, open banking really provides several benefits. You know, customers get choice. And with choice comes competition. And with competition comes a level playing field. With a level playing field comes new companies that offer better services, reduce costs, and new products. And uh, these new companies provide uh, and create tons of uh, new jobs. Uh, so that's the real big deal. And that's why this is such a, an important thing.
1: From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pool of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders, exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 54 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalvo. Our guest for this episode is known for delivering large-scale technology solutions over the last 30 plus years as both a consultant working with and as an executive at large banks and global insurers. He has implemented APIs, microservices, AI, machine learning, and payment solutions to help financial services firms accelerate their journey towards open banking, open payments, and the digital ecosystem. Most recently, he has focused on designing and implementing data mesh solutions to enable real-time data access in support of AI and ML solutions, open banking, and mainframe modernization transformations. Our guest for today is Eric Broda. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. So before we dive into the details of what's driving open banking in Canada, can you shed some light on what open banking is and how it's bringing more innovation to the banking industry?
0: Sure, sure. I think first off, uh, I think everybody knows we all buy stuff. uh, Mm -hmm. And I think everybody or most folks have a bank account or a credit card. And some of us even trade stocks. Uh, In in each case, what we have is banks uh, help us do this. And and today, uh, for this service, uh, we let banks own and control our financial data. So simply put, uh, they're the only player that can decide, you know, what to do with our data, who can use it and who can share it. So, So is this a big deal? Uh, I, I think it is, and, and I think the UK open banking regime, they published a report recently saying that uh, prior to open banking, they found several things, poor service and little competition, and with little competition, little choice, and with little choice, there's no innovation. So pretty stark situation, and that's why they, they introduced open banking. So I'll talk a little bit about open banking in the UK, primarily because it's, it's one of the first and probably the most well-known examples, but open banking in the UK specifically addressed uh, these issues. Uh, It provides a framework when consumers and businesses can authorize uh, third-party financial service providers to access their their financial data. Um, And What this really means is that open banking gives you control over your data and allows you to have a say about uh, how it's shared and how it's used. So, for example, um, you can go to a third-party investments, FinTech, for example, in Canada, there's there's a bunch of them that are premier at this point. Um, you can use them to access your account and provide better financial management services than your current bank. Or maybe you're a small business and you don't like uh, the cash management services that your current bank is is providing. You can go to uh, a fintech uh, or even a large player like Intuit with open banking and sign up for better cash management services. And this is really just a small sampling of the capability. If you look at the UK environment, you can see there's really a huge change in the competitive landscape. So now to summarize, you know open banking really provides several benefits. you know customers get choice. with choice comes competition and with competition comes a level playing field. With a level playing field comes new companies that offer better services, reduce costs, new products. and uh, these new companies provide uh, and create tons of uh, new jobs. Uh, so that's the real big deal and that's why this is such a, an important thing.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. And this trend towards open banking is now gaining global traction, obviously. So can you explain to us how it evolved from a European regulatory model to something that is now seeing international adoption?
0: Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Modern uh, open banking, I would say, probably started with PSD2, which is the Payment Mm -hmm. Service Directive, the second uh, iteration, out of the European Union in 2018. Now, the goal goal of PSD2 was really to offer customers Choice regarding banking providers, and as I mentioned earlier, was that choice, competition, innovation, better services, et cetera. Um, that that was kind of the starting point, but the UK quickly uh, extended this beyond beyond the payment origins origins and went into broader financial data and account sharing. Um, and then Australia went even further and, and used open banking as the the first or the vanguard of an open industry approach, which is expected to lead to things like open telecom, and, uh, and open energy. So, so, you can definitely see that there's there's uh, some pretty significant momentum. Now, the thing that's interesting about each of these approaches is that they're all relatively, I would call them, um, they, they were established as a result of a regulatory imperative. Um, now, other regions, uh, such as the US, probably most notably, they're, they're taking a little different approach. They're taking a much more laissez-faire approach, allowing the market to, to determine the best approach. Um, So far, uh, you know, they haven't provided a true open banking solution, but rather a solution that's clustered, you know, depending depending on your perspective, I suppose, fragmented around larger banks. So, so, you know, we see an ecosystem, perhaps to use that term, forming around uh, large banks like JP Morgan and uh, Wells Fargo. You know, simply put, I'd say that the jury is still out uh, on which approach is better in the long term, but but obviously the regulatory approach has definitely produced some, some clear uh, early stage uh, wins.
1: So uh, you're a very active writer. You've written quite a bunch of articles on your Medium account, and you have previously written about how open banking solves a number of issues, uh, including screen scraping. So what is this and how does open banking prevent it?
0: So screen scraping is, is really where uh, 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 technology actually looks at websites and then parses those websites, trying to look for key information. Uh, and they use that uh, to, to provide uh, banking services. So, so They don't actually integrate with your bank, they take the bank's website, parse it and try and uh, provide some services that mimic what the bank does. The problem with that is uh, in order to do it, you have to actually share some pretty confidential information, your username and your password. You have to share those with third parties. Um, now, now you know, if you think about that, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, first off, you know, you, your username and password that provides access to all of your financial data uh, and allows folks to actually do stuff with that financial data, it's stored at the third party. And if you look at all you have to do is take a look at the newspaper, you saw Capital One a few years ago, but in Canada, even Desjardins, uh, a ins- uh, banking provider in Canada had, uh, had da- uh, data leakage. Um, so really, my, my first comment would be that it's probably the wrong place to store sensitive data, and it requires especially a lot more due diligence. Now, that's not to say that third parties don't do, do, do the due diligence, but it's a lot of work. And uh, if every single party has to do that due diligence, it's really going to slow, not just, you know, aside from the security issues, it's going to slow the adoption of, of uh, this type of capability. So that's kind of the first thing second thing is uh, and I can't speak to you know whether it's the same outside of Canada. I, I suspect it is but uh, the contracts the banking contracts that people sign up for in Canada specifically uh, do not allow, Third-party uh, access to to your bank data, and they definitely do not allow you to share your username or password. So, really, what that means, and this is actually echoed in the Government of Canada report, is is uh, the, the real issue is if there's a financial dispute or or worse, a loss um, that recur that occurs as a result of third third-party negligence, you actually have no recourse. So, this is a really really big deal, and, and interestingly enough. The government of Canada put it in a report and they highlighted that uh, one of the the key um, opportunities as a result of open banking is to actually eliminate screen scraping. And they highlighted this because what what they found is through surveys and other means, uh, the customers really don't understand the material risk and and liability that they're actually undertaking. So so the net net is, is screen scraping is a solution that has worked in the past. Uh, but customers were, were oblivious, perhaps, of the risks and the liabilities. But there's a real opportunity is what the government of Canada has said around open banking to fix this.
1: Yeah. So since we're talking about, you know, the government of Canada and how they're approaching open banking, how does their approach, how does your approach uh, to open banking differ as compared to other open banking regimes in the world?
0: Sure. Sure. I would say that uh, there's probably a few different dimensions to that question. Um, but but first off, I would say that they're taking a relatively low risk and a highly regulated approach. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's different approaches for that. But ultimately, they're 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 taking a very low risk approach. So so to start with, the Canadian government's only addressing core banking information. But even within this context, uh, it is taking a quite a broad view. Uh, services are targeted to individual consumers as well as small businesses. Um, They're including a broad swath of of financial services of the financial service community, including Canada's largest federally regulated banks, but also uh, it's smaller uh, provincially regulated credit unions. There's quite a few of those as well as accredited fintech. So so it covers just about all of the financial players in the community. Uh, not just the big, but also the small and everything in between. The last but not least, it includes um, investment products, uh, explicitly highlighting things like stocks, bonds, mutual funds, etc., that are included under this uh, within the scope of these open banking APIs. Um, so I, I think that's kind of interesting. The next part I would say is that. From a, a, a scope perspective, Canada, I mentioned earlier, it's low risk. Um, and, and in some ways, I think maybe they, they uh, it's appropriately cautious. So if you think about Australia, they have what I would characterize or call as an open industry approach. Um, where where they're you know they're thinking about open you know they're going to do open banking then they're going to go and do open telecom and apply the same principles to open energy and a few others there's nothing like that on the agenda for Canada uh, and I think maybe that's a good thing uh, maybe we ought to be tackling open banking before we start to go into other industries but you know I, I don't want to critique the Australians uh, kudos to them for for going big um, uh, but that's not the approach Canada is taking. The only other thing I would say is is perhaps there's one area where Canada is a little too cautious, and that's around payments. So payments is a pretty well-established place uh, domain. Uh, It's been open payments is is working quite well in the the UK and in the EU. Uh, So so because of Canada's caution, we're not including payments within the open banking um, remit. Which really means we're going to be late to open payments and and some of the innovations around request to pay that you see in the uh, UK and EU market. So so again, just to summarize, some some uh, little low risk, perhaps uh, some caution, warranted caution, and then perhaps you know some areas where they could uh, go a little bit bigger.
1: All right, so let's dive into the technology aspect of this space. Obviously, there's a lot of technology going on behind open banking, and I'm very curious what role do APIs play in enabling open banking?
0: Sure. Uh, well, most of the readers probably know what their listeners rather probably know what APIs are, mm-hmm. but, but I'll kind of summarize it and simplify it. They, they provide the language and grammar by which apps, systems, applications talk to each other. So banking APIs are the language and grammar that let apps, systems and applications talk to banks. The problem with these banking APIs is that they're, is that they're closed. And in, in the sense, it, what that really means is that the banks don't share their language and grammar. Uh, effectively, what that means, means is every bank has its own language and grammar, and there's no translator for that bank's language. So it's so only your bank who knows that specific language or dialect or grammar can write APIs for themselves or, in, 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 you know, extending that apps. So what does this really mean? If you're a developer that wants to create a cool app to consolidate from multiple banks, you can't do that. And that's a problem. It stifles creativity, competition, uh, and uh, choice. So so now, if you look at uh, what regulatory regimes want to do is they want to open previously closed uh, the banking environment. They want to introduce an open banking language and grammar, and this is where open banking APIs come into play. They define the specification, or again, the language and grammar that all banks must conform to. And this will make it easier for developers to build apps that work with many banks, or at least those subject to uh, the, the regulatory regime.
1: All right. So uh, speaking of APIs, you've recently written that there is a need to rethink the enterprise API lifecycle because of today's competitive market. In your article, you detail some steps on how to radically improve API delivery speed. So, can you take us briefly through these steps?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I've been building large and complex APIs of banks, insurance, payments providers for many, many years. And one thing that is absolutely clear is that organizations, you know, uh, seem to use a one-size-fits-all life cycle for software delivery. And and this usually means that the life cycle is absolutely not fit for purpose, which really means. You know, uh, at many times, it's far too slow, costly, and perhaps overly manual. You know, what does this mean from a business perspective? It means products are going to market slower, uh, and they're more costly, and leading to lost revenue and lost opportunities. Um, APIs offer a unique opportunity, obviously, uh, you know, as most of the listeners probably know, to radically improve uh, speed and agility. Um, Recognizing the role of APIs as key enablers not to not just uh, open banking, but the broader digital o- ecosystem, I would argue that it's not just practical, feasible, and feasible, but absolutely necessary to rethink the API lifecycle and figure out exactly how we can tune it to optimize for the opportunities that uh, APIs present themselves. So there's a few ideas that I've, I've written about uh, at length. So the first one is um, recognizing that APIs are defined by specification. These are kind of the core artifacts that are, are used throughout the API lifecycle. These specifications, in many cases, are uh, crafted, handcrafted in some cases. Sometimes generated from the code, um, w- w- you know. But ultimately, they are, th- they are they are artifacts that are throughout the lifecycle. These specifications um, should be decomposable. They should be cataloged, and they should be able to be recomposed. So that's kind of the first thing. So these API specifications, typically, again, open APIs specify a contract for an API. These APIs. Get, get, get decomposed into sub schemas. These sub schemas can be used by developers and uh, building other APIs. So, so, the most obvious ones I think that most people would recognize is if you look at an open API specification, you don't want to reinvent the wheel on error codes. They're all the same, uh, and you ought to have consistency uh, uh, for those. Response messages, request bodies are all very, very similar. So, these components ought to be devi- defined correctly once. Uh, or better yet, uh, they, they should be decomposed from existing well-working specifications. So once you decompose these, uh, you, you now have artifacts that put into a catalog, they can now be found, easily found, consumed, and reused. Now with you know with the API these uh, API specifications, uh, now that they can be found, uh, they can be recomposed into new specifications. And this is a really big deal because now, As you recompose specifications, you're not going through the test debug cycle, the business definition cycle for all these reusable components. And ultimately you can deliver API specifications faster with greater agility and ultimately with huge cost savings. Uh, Pretty significant based on my experience. the second piece of the puzzle is the API lifecycle instrumentation. So, so in many cases, we, we often talk about APIs being instrumented to emit metrics, logs, crazy information. That's cool, that's necessary, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, rather, I suggest that we instrument the API lifecycle and gather, organize, and catalog all the digital exhaust that comes um, when we actually build uh, APIs and have them go through their, their lifecycle. So, so really, the question is, you know, if I if we could capture all of this digital exhaust, um, why wouldn't we want to store it in the same catalog where we store the API specification? Then we'd actually have an API marketplace that contains all data about an API. Now, think about this. Uh, if I can search and find an API and discovered specification code, test cases, test results, Docker files, Kubernetes, these are all things that uh, get emitted through the API lifecycle, um, what would I be able to do? Um, I, I can actually have uh, all the information about an API at my disposal. Uh, and that's a really, really big deal. I'll tell you, it, it, you know, that in and of itself makes it faster and easier to deliver and build APIs, but there's even an additional benefit. Uh, and and it really leads to uh, you know, what's traditionally called API governance. I really don't actually like that phrase, I like the phrase API certification. You know, for, for a bunch of different reasons. First off, uh, I've never found a developer that that enjoys the governance process in any organization, even in the most advanced shops. Uh, you know, I still see physical or perhaps virtual today governance meetings that to, to determine if an API is ready to move from say development to testing or from testing to production. Um, so so ultimately, what we end up having is is pretty well intentioned and, and smart people reviewing artifacts. And probably offering some high-level questions, but in the span of a single meeting, most of this dialogue is superficial and complete, and it's largely based on opinion rather than fact, and ultimately doesn't add uh, a lot of value. Value, in fact, even in the best cases where I've seen API governance, governance in general, perhaps um, where it actually works, it, it only in the best cases it actually catches gross negligence or oversight. So, so I'd like to offer a different scenario for, for that. Um, and it's really enabled by the previous two points that I mentioned. So again, let's assume we have the API marketplace populated by all necessary artifacts. Now. What would we, uh, what if we provided machine readable checklists? So it's so a really simple, perhaps a JSON file that defines what API life cycles are required at what stage and what constitutes a pass for governance purpose for each stage of the API life cycle. With a little bit of automation, I'm not talking about a lot because I've done this before, uh, each item in the checklist can be interrogated, assessed, and offered a pass or fail grade and registered again in the API Marketplace's catalog. Um, and, and now what if this governance status was available and current at any one point in time? Now governance meetings um, can be fact-based. When you go to the governance meeting, everybody looks at the the API marketplace, looks at the API, looks at its governance checklist, and they can actually see all the information available all in place. Now at least they can make fact-based decisions. Now interestingly enough what I've seen uh, is for at least the early stages of the life cycle, uh, once once this data API lifecycle um, information is in the catalog and becomes trusted, then even the governance means, API governance means, the ones that everybody hates uh, can start to be eliminated uh, and API governance even can be automated. Now, I've never seen anybody actually go, there's always, in my, at least the clients that I've worked with, there's always been a point where they, they, they want to have that gut feel before something goes into production. But What I have seen is in many organizations, they can get rid of you know many of the, the the governance meetings and automate those um, uh, with, with this approach. And uh, again, uh, the net result is what you get is tremendous speed improvements resulting in cost improvements, uh, cost reductions uh, and the like. So, so this is a, actually a really big deal. Unfortunately, what I found is I've had to build each of these pieces in parts, assemble them in parts. There's no real product that does a lot of these things, but this should be well within the the, the remit and capability of uh, uh, a fintech who, uh, or uh, an API technology firm to uh, to assemble the parts and make this a product that you know, I, f- I know for one, my clients would love. <laughs> yeah,
1: interesting idea there. All right, so I wanna go uh, full circle now since uh, we've been talking about open banking and it's been opening several pathways, open banking, to digital transformation. But apart from this, one could argue that the pandemic was also another catalyst towards this digital transformation. So looking back and based on your personal experience, do you think companies took advantage of the time during the pandemic when it hit to digitally transform themselves? Or were they just really responding to a one-off event that forced them to implement protocols for remote working and remote customer service but missed the opportunity for true digital transformation?
0: Yeah, um, I had to give this one quite a bit of thought. Uh, and, and, you know, I say this, my, my response would be, you know, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, as they say. <laughs> um, so, so if I were to use my Wayback Machine and look at in the past, I would probably say that most organizations were caught flat footed by the speed and impact of, of the pandemic. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, simply put, technology spend uh, needed to radically increase and business initiatives needed to be, you know, radically reprioritized, and all this had to be done at a pace that none of them were, were really accustomed to. So, if you think about, it, like you mentioned, a few things, the confluence of events that they had to deal with, a, a completely new remote work uh, worker culture, uh, you know, required everything from network upgrades to so identifying, you know, new ways of working. Um, the, the, the whole, the widespread you know, rise of the digital ecosystem, the electronic supply chain, even in financial services, we see that uh, has made enterprises realize that they they truly needed to reprioritize and dramatically accelerate their their technology, and in particular, the API and integration efforts. And and all this really, you know, I think ultimately radically changed the enterprise decision-making process. Business and IT now sit at the same executive table. Business decisions are IT decisions and vice versa. And I see the executive team, you know, now they're starting to realize that they, they really need to have some serious technical chops. Now, the nice thing about this is I think this is a, a lasting result. And I think we're going to see this, this mode of operation uh, going forward.
1: All right. Can you, I know you um, work for a confidential company, but uh, do you have like some, somewhere in your mind um, an organization that, you know, embodied this true digital transformation?
0: Uh, yeah, like most of my, you can kind of look at my LinkedIn and figure out, uh, but I'm not not at liberty to actually mention uh, any mm-hmm. of their names. But if you take a look at it, uh, I, I would say there's, there's definitely been some of those clients that have absolutely positively uh, lived the digital transformation. Now, the interesting thing is, is that I, you know, one client, again, I, I have to, they have to remain nameless um uh they they had a digital transformation initiative um well underway before the pandemic started um but what we found is there's a confluence of all these things we talked about but more the the thing that i found most specifically interesting and enlightening was this digital supply chain uh and, and what ended up happening was Uh, we were timed just perfect at the start of the pandemic we were actually on my team myself and my team were implementing the API platform the Kafka platform and a bunch of other things related to that and what we found is uh, that really the the whole recognition There was a very early recognition that uh, APIs you know uh, event management just as a few examples there's a variety of others we're going to be core to actually addressing this the rise of the digital ecosystem so they invested they doubled down in effect um to 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 radically accelerate their digital transformation and the bottom line is is it has paid huge huge dividends it directly led to you know millions of dollars of new deals um it it has uh led to um a pretty um seamless transition to the remote workforce uh, and I think it's really changed the the culture of the organization um, to to recognize that technology and business decisions really are made uh, together. Uh, and I and I have seen, like I said, there's been huge huge benefits as a result of that. So so the pandemic caused a ton of problems, um, but I think you know one of the side effects, uh, unintended perhaps, the, one of the beneficial side effects is that it's really energized. Um, uh, the recognition that uh, technology is core and fundamental and central to these organizations, and it's shown that for those that have invested, uh, there are true returns on the investment, uh, and they're quite substantial. And I think that is, you know, um, uh, I, I don't, I'd, li- I'd love to if I could take credit for all of that, but really, <laughs> this is about some pretty wise and forward-thinking uh, CIOs uh, and CEOs and CFOs.
1: Yeah, speaking of CIO, CFOs, and uh and you know all the people in the C-suite, where should digital transformation ideally begin within the organization in order to drive effective change? Because you know, uh, you talked how uh, business IT, uh, business and IT are now sitting in the same boardroom. So, is it the CEO's responsibility to drive down that kind of initiative? Does it come from board of directors? Does it, or does it come from operators even in the in the ranks?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Let's kind of unpack it a bit. I suppose first off, I, I kind of mentioned earlier, but you know, in every industry of all sizes, you know, every enterprise is a digital enterprise. They participate in a you know an increasingly digital ecosystem. I think you know, and I think most most industries are starting, most firms are starting to realize that. And I think you know, you've even seen research from great firms like McKinsey that have shown that firms that aggressively digitize are, are, you know, are far ahead of their, their industry competition. Um, now, if you look at the largest, even the largest companies on earth, Apple, Microsoft, they're all digital. And, and in fact, if you look at just the you know, car that I, I drive or, or other folks drive, that car, most people don't realize, it has more software in it than, than you know, some banks. Um, you, we have more power in our phones than data centers did a few day, at least when I started my career uh, a few decades ago. Um, so really, what this means is that you know digital transformation, or the act of becoming more digital, is now a fundamental enabler of success, and as such, it needs to become part of a firm's DNA. So, so now the last thing I'd mention before I answer your question, you know, as context, digital transformation is not a quick endeavor. Uh, it takes years, a huge amount of willpower, and a huge amount of funding. So, you know, it, with so much riding on becoming digital. Um, and, and you know the, the heavy boulders that you have to actually move, there's really only one place where this can be organized and led, and that is the CEO, the, the chief executive officer. There's no one else that can reorient an entire firm towards a digital journey. There's nobody else who really has the power to drive major change. There's no one else who can sustain that type of change for multiple re- years. And since the, the CEO reports to the board, she will need to convince the board to secure the necessary funding for a change of this magnitude. So the simple answer is that a, 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 a true digital transformation is driven by the CEO. But um, while the, the drive, the vision comes from the CEO, uh, you know, there's a number of partners that need to play a significant role to make this happen. CFO needs to understand why this is important, provide the funding, if you will. The, CIO needs to be able to mobilize the technology resources to implement that vision. And there's a variety of other partners that need to participate. But at the end of the day, it really comes from uh, the CEO. Eric, you're at
1: the thick of change uh, within organizations and even through open banking over there in Canada. How much of a cultural change is digital transformation?
0: Uh, I would say it's a very significant change. Um, in fact, I don't think you can do any digital transformation without uh, a changing culture. And I think a changing culture really boils down to a few things. One is obviously the the, the first is is you know the organization may need to change uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, uh, and I've seen that uh, actually be required in a number of places. I think the other part is is uh, really uh, attitudes um, need to change, and not in a, in a negative sense. Uh, in fact, I think most people that I deal with, uh, you know, whether it's uh, the developers or the CEOs, CxOs, um, there's all a will to, to change, um, but there needs to be in order to you know that will needs to be commensurate with uh, an, an execution ability, and what I think I found what I've seen is there needs to be a culture change that says I can wait for things to happen to one that says I'm going to be bold and aggressive and take the lead becoming a you know a leader or at least a fast follower as opposed to a late follower or a laggard uh, and that's the, the the true cultural change that needs to take place I think you know that leads to a bunch of other things embracing you know uh, and I know a lot of folks uh, are moving towards, you know, the agile uh, delivery model. There's still a lot of big firms that are, in, 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 you know, stuck in the, the waterfall model. Sometimes that's appropriate, but ultimately, even the way we do IT uh, needs to transform from something that uh, is, you know, relatively slow, stable to something that is a little bit more agile. The last thing I would mention, culture, uh, relative to culture change, I think it's the ability to accept and embrace risk. That's not to say we accept and embrace crazy risk. What mm-hmm. that really means is if I accept and embrace risk, that what that, what that means is I put in the guardrails to recognize when I'm going off base or off track so I don't go off the ditch but rather I can course correct relatively quickly and easily. But with those guardrails in place, be able to take risks and reap the rewards of those risks. So I think those are some of the cultural changes that I've seen. At my clients, um, and I suspect that's not common to just my clients, that, that's the culture change that I think is is uh, seen in the, the, the ones that truly do successful digital transformation.
1: All right, Eric, you've been great at distilling all this information and facts uh, with your insights and opinions. I'm sure our listeners would love to pick your brain. Uh, where can they follow what you write and what you do?
0: Sure, uh, I'm active on medium.com. So just do a quick search on Eric Rhoda. Uh, very active on LinkedIn. Uh, so that would probably be the second place that I would go to. Uh, so uh, that would be, you know, each of those have a way to, uh, to message me or provide some feedback. So that would be the, the, uh, the ideal way for me to, uh, to interact with my uh, the, team, the folks that are interested in talking to me.
1: All right, Eric, thank you very much for joining us for Coding Over Cocktails. I hope you had a grand time.
0: I did. Uh, Kevin, thank you very much. And uh, we will uh, hopefully uh, we can talk again uh, in the future.
1: All right. Hopefully in person. In person, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> All right. That's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, cause we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!